Thank you very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here, uh, to be invited to Aspen, this beautiful place. It's the first time, so my first time back in 20 years. I was, uh, for 20 years ago, I was working at the University of Denver for a year, and it's a beautiful state, and it's a real pleasure to be back here. So what I'm going to talk about are the application of artificial intelligence to, to scientific research and the robot scientists. It should be up a bit. Okay, thanks. Okay, this is the, the talk plan. I'm going to describe the basic idea of a robot scientist. I'm going to spend some time on the background of what artificial intelligence is and its role and application in creativity. Then I'm going to talk about my two robot scientists, Adam and Eve, and describe how they work. So this is the, the basic concept, basic idea of a robot scientist. We want to make a computer system which on its own can create, invent hypotheses, uh, form experiments to test these hypotheses, then physically, robotically, actually do the experiments using laboratory automation and then the robot computer scientist system will look at the experimental results, uh, consider how it fits in with the hypotheses, whether the hypothesis has been confirmed or rejected, and then cycle round again. So we have background knowledge describing an area of science. We have an automated way of forming hypotheses, which are consistent with the background knowledge. We have an automated way of forming experiments which test these hypotheses. We have lab robots which will actually automatically do the experiments. We have computers which will analyze the results of the experiments and will cycle around until you either run out of some uh, resource or you have one consistent hypothesis. That's the basic idea. We want to automate scientific research. So, so why, are we, why are we interested in doing this? So one motivation is philosophical. So I'm really interested in uh, understanding what exactly science is. You know, what, what is this endeavor of of science. And to me, and that if we could actually get a computer system to do science, even if it's a simple form of science, then that would tell us something about the nature of science itself. Okay? So there's this philosophical position which states that you can only fully understand the phenomena if you can make a machine which reproduces it. You know, otherwise, it's sort of just uh, hand-waving type stuff. Only if you can actually get a machine to do something do you really understand it, I would claim. And this idea is very similar to actually the, the general uh, thrust of artificial intelligence, which aims to build artifacts which are considered to be in some sense intelligent. Okay. So uh, this is Richard Feynman, this famous physicist, Nobel laureate. And on his, uh, when he died, on his blackboard, there was a statement, what I cannot create, I do not understand. And I, this is very similar to the, my philosophy of trying to understand science by building machines that, in some sense, do science. There's also a technological motivation. So uh, the idea is to make scientific research uh, cheaper, faster, and perhaps better. Okay? So uh, if we had machines which could do science, uh, once you have one machine, it's very easy to make more machines of the same type, whereas human beings take 20 years to, to multiply, so it's, it's a very slow way and it's a very expensive way to do it. Uh, so there's this idea. So in uh, science, especially in biology, there's this concept of high-throughput science, so getting machines to help in the scientific endeavor, but most of that is just repetitively doing tasks. It's not what uh, is termed hypothesis-led science. So hypothesis-led science is where you have a hypothesis, you do experiments to test it, and you cycle rounds this sort of uh, cycle like I showed you for, at the beginning of the robot scientist. We know from theory and from practice that this is a much more efficient way of doing science than just uh, randomly looking at things, you know, which is, you know, if you're a scientist, you don't I uh, just wander around looking at things and trying to understand them. You actually do things in the lab, create special conditions to test your hypotheses. That's a much more efficient way of doing things. 
And there's another reason why robot scientists are potentially of importance is that when a computer does an experiment, they record it much better than a normal human being would do. Okay, they take proper records, they, everything's explicit, why the experiment is done, what the hypothesis was, the logical chain of reasoning from, any from the results to any conclusions, that's all explicit. And that's not the case with normal science, scientific researchers. And scientific research is normally uh, reported using natural language, English or French or Mandarin or something. And that is notoriously hard uh, to understand because there's always f difficult parts. Of, in English language, there's, it's full of ambiguity. You know, it's designed not to necessarily communicate ideas between human beings. It's designed to do other things for human beings to communicate it to each other, to make them fall in love with you, write poetry. These sort of things are what language is for. It's not necessarily there to unambiguously communicate ideas between other people. And computers need this much more formalistic way of representing ideas. And particularly in biology, that uh, biological systems are incredibly complicated. Even the, uh, the simplest model systems we use in biology, this E. coli, the yeast, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, they're incredibly complicated. They consist of thousands of interacting parts, genes, proteins, small molecules, and they interact in incredibly complicated spatial and temporal ways. So often when you want to understand an artifact, you use this Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is the most likely one. That isn't necessarily a good heuristic in understanding biology. This is because these systems evolved over time. And so they do things in difficult to understand ways. And it's not like a human engineer would, would engineer a biological system. Uh, in fact, one of my projects is that I, w I really like to re redesign these cells and uh, re-implement them in a clean, elegant way, which is, the, you know, they're not at the moment, you know, there's spaghetti code. There's not enough PhDs in the world, I think, for any time soon for us to understand these systems. So we need more automation, I would argue. Okay, so I'm going to give this uh, potted history of artificial intelligence now. So, so back in the 19th century, uh, Charles Babbage invented this concept of a, a general machine which could compute uh, arbitrary things. Uh, this is uh, one of his original pieces of equipment. He never actually finished engineering it and building it. If he had, perhaps the history of the world would be different, but uh, he uh, kept getting better ideas and abandoning the old ones and building new pieces of kit. Uh, actually, currently in the Science Museum in London, they're, they're halfway through building an analytical machine. Uh, they already have built his previous idea, this thing called a difference machine, which was designed to calculate, uh, essentially uh, do a bit of calculus and calculate tide tables and things. Uh, so it's, this general purpose analytical machine has been built in, at the moment. Uh, See, one of the interesting things is that, so uh, after they built this difference machine in, in, it's in the museum in London, other museums around the world wanted one, you know, so Britain is now the leading exporter of mechanical computers in the world, you know. <laughs> Forget uh, Taiwan or North Korea or South Korea or something, you know. We build the best mechanical machines. But there's an important point here is that uh, computing is a, uh, is in some sense abstract, but also there's a substrate to it. There's a mechanical substrate with it, or electronic substrate to it. And it doesn't matter, I would argue, or most computer scientists would argue, whether the computation is done in uh, mechanical wheels, electronic uh, circuits, or neurons in your brain. It's, it's all the same, we would argue. Okay, so the uh, Alan Turing uh, was, uh, was the founder of... Uh, modern computer science. He he was born almost exactly 100 years ago. So on Saturday, last Saturday, it was his the anniversary of his 100th birthday. Yeah? Uh, he uh, developed, well, that's, I think three main things he did. He developed the mathematics behind computer science, these things called Turing machines. Uh, in 1936, his famous paper. 
In the Second World War, he was one of the main theoreticians behind the breaking of the German codes. Uh, and thanks to a bit of German stupidity and uh, a bit of uh, brilliance in Britain and his team, they, and the, actually the development of machines to break the codes. So what the Germans, the Germans made several mistakes, but the most fundamental of their mistakes was they completely underestimated the amount of computing which the British could apply to breaking their their codes, you know, so they, by many orders of magnitude, they underestimated the, the computing power of, that would be deployed against them. They also ignored the possibility that the codes could be broken because there was lots of empirical evidence, and many people tried in the German system tried to point out that there's something wrong. There's the British seem to have the jump on them, but they, they ignored it. They said it's impossible. Yeah. He was also a, a pioneer of artificial intelligence. So after the Second World War, he I moved to Manchester and worked with the first stored, uh, first electronic stored computer, the Mark I in Manchester, and also wrote this famous paper on uh, the foundation of artificial intelligence. Okay, so there's going to be three slides of sort of deep, difficult stuff. Uh, so formal systems. So. In a deep sense, a computer program is equivalent to what's called a formal system in mathematics. Okay, so and this, this basic idea goes back to ancient Greece and Euclid and trying to formalize what mathematics is. So in some sense, a computer is, is just a physical embodiment of a, a set of axioms, postulates, etc. And a computer just does deduction. And in a deep sense, a, when a computer program executes, what it's really doing is, is proving theorems in a particular set of axioms. And the question, then you start to, uh, if this is really the case, and it is the case, because actual computer science arose out of people trying to understand the limitations of such systems. Uh, you, th you think, can it be possible that such, just a set of rules and axioms can actually do something creative? And I would argue that it, that is the case, but that's because there's so many, the, the complications, the depth of these rules, you can have lots of rules, I and mean, when you execute them for long periods of time, so they start to have behavior you wouldn't expect from just uh, looking at them simply. Okay, so there's also this, uh, what Turing proved in 1936 was that uh, there was a single universal Turing machine, and that it could ex emulate all other Turing machines by and that's what happened. So essentially, when you have a, your, your computer, your, your mobile phone, or these are all physical embodiments of universal Turing machines. Okay, and you, they can. The reason that they can do so many different things is that you, is that they can emulate other Turing machines by just changing the program. So that's what happens when you change program or get a new app. You're just reprogramming this universal Turing machine. There are a few. It's not quite a universal Turing machine because that's uh, an abstract idea and it assumes certain things like uh, you have infinite amounts of memory or at least potentially infinite amounts of memory and that you can execute for potentially infinite amounts of time. And you have to start wondering whether that's physically possible in, the, in our universe, whether you could actually have an infinite amount of memory uh, or that you can make a machine that never made a mistake. But assuming these things then... And in fact, your, your phone or your computer is pretty close to that. You know, it's a fantastic large amount of memory, and it makes very few mistakes. But uh, Gordon Truman proved that there are certain things that cannot be computed. Uh, this is, yeah. And one of them is uh, whether an arbitrary computer program will stop or not. So there's, there's deep limits to what can be computed, assuming that the universe isn't infinite in some ways. Okay. And some people have argued that uh, this is the big difference between uh, human beings and computers, is that somehow our brains can compute things which no mechanical, electronic, neural device will ever be able to do. There's something different there. And that's what uh, Sir Roger Penrose believes. You know. So, uh, as I said, on Saturday was Turing's birthday, and there was a very high-powered conference in Manchester, which I was, had the privilege to attend, and many Turing Award winners there. So Turing, in computer science, the Turing Award is essentially the equivalent of a Nobel Prize. It's every year there's 
one or two people or perhaps three people are, are awarded the Turing Awards. And uh, the feeling in there was that there isn't anything that human beings can do which is in some sense non-computable. So there's this thing called the Church Turing Thesis as well, which and this is the last of these difficult slides. And it's a thesis, it means it can't be, it's not proven, I'm not sure how you prove it, but it says that uh, there's no way you can make a any device in this physical universe of ours which is more powerful than a Turing machine. Yeah, so that there's nothing, not, no physical way of doing anything more powerful. And the reason people believe this is that many people have tried to think up some abstract machine which is actually in some sense more powerful. And when they've done this, they've all come back to the same concept of the universal Turing machine. They're all equivalent. Okay. You may have heard of uh, quantum computers, which are, uh, in some sense, potentially much more powerful than, than Turing machines, in that they can uh, do in linear time something which would take exponential time on a, on a traditional machine. But they can't solve this non-computability thing they can't do. So that what's non-computable on a Turing machine is the same as on a, on a quantum computer. Okay. In fact, actually, the, the whole concept of uh, quantum computers came out of uh, people wondering about what this church Turing thesis meant. You know, it's, it's not just about a piece of mathematics, it's about what the physical universe. And that was when I heard uh, David Deutsch, the person who invented the, the concept of a quantum computer, that was his inspiration, this church Turing thesis. Okay, so uh, a more interesting, well, well, more embodied type ideas. So this is his, Turing's famous paper of 1950 on computing machine intelligence. Uh, in fact, I would recommend reading this. It's, it's, it's a model of how to write something which is uh, both easy to, to read and to understand and of deep uh, significance. You know, it's... It's very hard to do this to actually be easy to understand and to be deep uh, intellectually, and this paper is, is that. And in this paper, he proposed this operational test to decide whether or not a uh, machine is intelligent. So this is a big question, what is intelligence? Uh, and this test is essentially you, by teletype, you have get to ask questions to this, this object or this, this agent in another room, and the problem is to ask questions which to find out whether this is uh, intelligent or not. And there's, every year there's an annual competition to see how well people do, or how machines do, and, and they do dreadfully still. It's very, uh, but there are some questions whether that's just because enough money hasn't been spent at trying to do this. But of course, just because you fool someone into thinking that it's, the object is intelligent doesn't mean that it really is as intelligent as a human being. It's, you know, there's, uh, Turing was inspired by a Victorian parlor game where the idea is instead of uh, trying to distinguish between computers and human beings, the idea was to distinguish between men and women. Okay, so you ask, what question would you ask which uh, a man or a woman wouldn't be able to answer correctly? You know, and, it's, and it's not obvious how you do that. And even if you did manage to fool someone to think that I'm a woman by answering questions about I don't know what woman. That doesn't mean I'm actually a woman, you know, just because I can fool other people into thinking that I'm a woman by asking questions. So there's, at this meeting in, in Manchester, we had endless discussion of what exactly this, <laughs> this Turing test means. It's, it's a deep question. It's not, it's not clear. Okay, I want to, to go back to Charles Babbage. So his, the first programmer in the world was actually a woman. This was Lady Lovelace. She was the daughter of uh, Lord Byron the poet. And she collaborated with Charles Babbage on the general purpose analytical machine. And she was famous, uh, this is one of, in Turing's paper, one of the objections, he lists a long list of objections to this idea of ever having a computer which is truly intelligent. And one of them is what he calls Lady Lovelace's objection. That an, an anal the analytical machine has no pretensions to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. So there's, in some sense, no originality in the machine. So how, how can you tell it to be, to be intelligent? Uh, there's an interesting historical point. She, 
Lily Lovelace had a very nasty end in that uh, she had an, uh, an affair of a, a man which was, which was very shocking at the time and then she got cancer and her, became helpless and her mother, in some sort of punishment to her, her for having this affair, refused her pain-killing medicine. So she, it's, it's dreadful, yeah. Okay, yeah. so Turing's answer to Lady Lovelace's objection was, uh, was that learning, uh, like a child. So in some sense, uh, human, human beings and children are not closed systems. They interact with the real world. Uh, and just as teachers don't get all the credit for their pupils' discoveries, it's unfair to claim all credit for the ideas you know, of a, a programmer for anything which a computer generates. I'm going to talk a little bit about some applications and then go on to Adam and Eve. Okay, so one, one of the most successful applications of artificial intelligence is computer chess. Uh, and computers now play much better chess than the best human beings, and they make strikingly beautiful moves. So at this meeting in, in Manchester, there was also Gary Kasparov. He's the the person in the, the back there who was a world champion at the time when he played this famous game against Deep Blue, which was programmed by IBM. Yes, in this. Uh, the situation now is that you can download onto your computer uh, a program which will easily outperform what Deep Blue did then. You know, it's, so the best computer programs are now 400 ELO points better than the, the best humans have ever been. That means that on almost all matches, the human being is going to lose against the computer, even if, even if you're world champion. Gary, so Gary Kasparov, I, I thought he would, for a while he sort of complained that Deep Blue somehow cheated against him and he was quite bitter. <laughs> yeah, he, was, he said that some human being intervened, which seemed ridiculous to me considering he was the world's best player. You know, how could, but... Uh, no, he was, he was very open about that. Computers are much better at chess, you know. And it's, uh, he said that perhaps it's possible if a human being played flawlessly, uh, then they might be able to beat a computer currently. Uh, and there are certainly some positions still which human beings can outperform computers, but generally computers are so much better. Uh, but there is this interesting... Uh, sort of variant in that humans and computers working together are better than humans or computers alone. You know, so that when people have tried to have these competitions against them, this actually combination of a human being and a computer is still better than any alone, which, which I think is very interesting. Oh yeah, and this famous game in 1992 in 1997 was that uh, Gary Kasparov was the best player in the world, perhaps the greatest player ever, and he uh, made this offer of a pawn sacrifice for those, for those who understand chess. And then no human being would have ever taken it because they're just terrified of getting into a complicated position with the best player in the world. But the computer just calmly looked at the position, uh, had no fear, and saw that he couldn't, see, couldn't find any weaknesses in it and just took it. And Kasparov psychologically was very damaged by that because he, he couldn't understand it. And he actually... In the end, he was much more afraid of, well, he, he was afraid, whereas the computer has no concept of fear, you know, it's, it, which is perhaps good and bad. Well, this was a recent success of artificial intelligence, and this, this game of Jeopardy, where this, also IBM, developed a question answering system in natural language and uh, easily beat the, the best players in Jeopardy ever. It's, it's quite impressive because it's quite a free form. Formats, you know, you have the questions are quite varied, and uh, yeah, it's amazing. And driverless cars, so uh, cars are is now. I think the big problem with driverless cars is not as legal and things like that nowadays. It's not uh, the technology isn't there to do it. I'm going to go on about applications of artificial intelligence to, to science. So uh, 
in my view, science is a wonderful application area for artificial intelligence. It's, it's very abstract like chess. So that's the, the reason that computers could do so well in chess is that it's, it's a small 64 square world with 32 pieces. It's, it's very enclosed, you know, whereas we live in this much more multidimensional, uh, complicated world. Uh, science is something in between, I would argue. So it's abstract like chess, you know, you have, it's very, you know, it's logical and, uh, but it does deal with the real world, you know, uh, in which chess doesn't, you know, so it's much more open. And there are many formalized domains. And there's a big advantage, I think, for, compared to dealing with human beings, in that nature is honest. So one of the really difficult theoretical problems about, uh, in computer science and artificial intelligence is when you have agents which tell you lies and are not always honest. You know, it's very hard, you know, and you have to think: Is this agent telling me the truth, and am I telling them the truth? Yeah, and all these sort of games that uh, human beings play, and that's probably we're optimized to play these sort of things. Whereas, if you do a scientific experiment, we believe that nature doesn't lie to you. You know, you may misinterpret the result of the experiment, but it's in some sense honest. You know, so that, that gives a real advantage to the system of trying to understand the natural world, that it's not lying to you, it's not trying to manipulate you. So it's a big advantage. And that simplifies all the, uh, the abstract reasoning. So this idea of applying uh, science to, well, artificial intelligence to science is an old one. It goes back to the 1960s in Stanford, a system called Metadendral, which was to do with mass spectrometry data. And the idea was that this was a picture from Vikings. So if you remember in the 70s, they sent uh, the Viking probes to Mars and looking for life. Uh, I can still remember as a child when they announced on the, on the radio that life had been discovered in Mars. Wow. Uh, and actually, there probably is life there. I, I would, you, some, it's, you can't make a... At least I think it's true that you can't bet on life being on Mars anymore because they've stopped taking the bets because it's so probable that there is some sort of microbial life there. You know? uh, but what they did was they, they had this sent machine there and it added water to some Mar Martian soil and got oxygen off, which the, the initial interpretation that was caused by life, but it, there are probably some other chemical explanations. And mass spectrometry is a way of trying to detect life. So back in the 60s in Stanford, they were planning for this Voyager trips, and they wanted to, they realized that Mars can, the speed of light is finite, so it can take from 6 to 20 minutes to send a signal to Mars, depending on how we're configured uh, on the planet. So you need to give some sort of autonomy to the, to the systems you send there. And so they, were, they tried to do this, and unfortunately this, the computer systems then weren't powerful enough to really enable them to do this. There's a star, stellar, uh, I'm not sure you can see this, there's the main computer scientist is this person called Egg Feigenbaum, who's got the Turing Award, it's the like, Nobel Prize for Computer Science. Uh, Joshua Ledenberg, who got, he got the Nobel Prize for medicine, he uh, essentially he discovered sex and bacteria, which is the basis of all, well, almost all biotechnology. And Carl Jurassi was one of the chemists involved. He should get the Nobel Prize for chemistry, in my view. But, but probably won't for political reasons. Does, does anyone know Carl Jurassi? Yeah. So he, he's one of the co-inventors of the contraceptive pill, which is clearly one of the most influential pieces of chemistry of the 20th, 21st century. But there's, and the Nobel Prize is supposed to be for a discovery and invention. You know, it's not uh, necessarily for science. Well, not for some scientific theory, but there are powerful voices against him from religious elements. Uh, so one of the other main highlights of applying computer science, or well, artificial intelligence to science, is the system called Bacon, which was, came out in the late 1970s and 80s. And it was very controversial because they claimed to have rediscovered uh, like Kepler's three laws of planetary motion, which uh, in some sense they didn't, but in the real sense they didn't. So what they did was they gave cleaned up data to the system and then it found these numerical laws, well, Kepler's laws within that data. But the really hard part, I think, for Kepler was not to, gen to form the, the equations from the data, but to 
realise what the problem was and what data to collect and what data to trust and what all these things were, were not done by Bacon. And these were the really hard uh, aspects of, of the problem. Uh, Herbert Simon was one of the main people leading this work. He, he got Nobel Prize for uh, economics and he's also got the Turing Award. So. Okay, so my, after these stellar people, there's me, I'm afraid. This is my robot scientists. I'm going to spend the ne next bit of the talk uh, trying to explain how they work and what we've done. So our first robot scientist is called Adam. I'm going to go through these different parts, briefly explaining the different parts. So the application area was in something called functional genomics in yeast, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So this is the organism which is used to make <coughs> wine, beer, bread, scotch whiskey. It's, uh, but its significance in biology is that it's what's called a model system and that it's, even though it's our last common ancestor between human beings and yeast was at least a billion years ago, biology is incredibly conservative. So almost everything which is true about yeast is true about human cells as well. And these and yeast cells are much easier to manipulate and grow. The much, human cells are very finicky, difficult to understand, and much more complicated. So yeast has only about 6,000 genes. And it was sequenced... Uh, in 1996, it was the first eukaryotic organism to be sequenced, so we're eukaryotes, it's one of the three big branches of life. It's probably one of the best understood organisms on the planet, perhaps the best, but still roughly 15% of its genes, we don't understand what they do. So functional genomics is the, the science of trying to understand the functions of components in biological systems. And Eurofan, this European project, made... What they did was made 6,000 variants of, of yeast. Each one had one gene removed. Okay, so they engineered 6,000 different variants and mutants. And the task was... And the reason they did this was to try to understand what the components do. So if you have a... That is like if you have a car and you remove a component and the, the car behaves differently, that gives you a clue how it works. So if you take away the steering wheel and you can't steer anymore, then you could infer that the steering wheel is to do with steering. And that's the sort of reasoning which biologists use. Okay. And that's the sort of reasoning which Adam used to try to understand these 15% of missing genes. Okay, so in science, there's this interplay between the abstract and, and, the, and the physical. So we had to explain to the computer, Adam, a lot of basic biology about yeast, because it, it can't possibly discover anything new unless it's told what's already known. Okay. Uh, so we built this complicated logical model of what's known about yeast, especially about this metabolism. So metabolism is how it converts its food, which is basically sugar, into more yeast. So, okay, so we needed to develop this, this abstract logical model. Uh, so the, the key to do this is that the model is good enough and complete enough that you can reason about the real system, but not so complicated that uh, you, you know, all sorts of things which are irrelevant to this main problem. So this, how to get that balance is the real beauty of most science, is getting a, a model which is good enough to help you, but not so complicated that you can't reason with it. Okay, so we built this logical model. Uh, and we had this abstraction. So the abstraction is we represented metabolism as a graph. So a graph is this concept in mathematics. Uh, and essentially this is a, a graph of the metabolites. So these are the small molecules, uh, things like sugars, amino acids, are represented as nodes and enzymes are arcs. And you have to be able to relate this abstract mathematical model to what, you what the computer observes in the lab. And we did this through this idea of a path. So if a path can be found from cell inputs, or these are things which the yeast eats to cell outputs, these are essential molecules it must be able to synthesize to be able to grow, then the cell can grow. And that's something which we can reason with the graph, and we can observe whether the cell is growing or not using laboratory automation. So that relates this abstract model to what can be physically observed in the lab. Here's a tiny little part of it. 
This is a very small part, but it's recently complete. So this is glycerate. This is a starting point, and tyrosine, phenylalanine, and tryptophan are molecules which the cell must be able to make. Things in black are the are metabolites, and in blue are the yeast names of the enzymes which catalyze the reactions. So this is complicated. This is just a tiny fraction of this giant graph. So the We've included pretty much what's known about yeast, at least in the bioinformatics database. It turns out that there's a lot more known about yeast, but that's in scientific papers which are very hard to extract that knowledge back out again. That's what the science of text mining does. Okay, hypothesis formation. That was the background knowledge. How do we form hypotheses? Uh, so there's these things called locally orphan enzymes, which... Adam deals with. Okay, so in the philosophy of science, if you, if you read the philosophy of science, generating hypotheses is supposed to be the really hard part. This is the bit where, you know, a leap, a leap of imaginations are required, you know, uh, calculates on the bus and he suddenly sees images of snakes and he realizes that's the structure of benzene and things like that. The technology which Adam uses is a thing called abductive inference, and that infers missing arts and labels in this graph. Once these missing nodes are inferred, then you can do deduction to decide on experiments. Okay, I'm going to try and explain these terms, abduction and deduction. Okay, so deduction, you have a, this is, deduction is the basis of computer science and mathematics. Uh, all swans are white, Daffy is a swan, then you can infer that Daffy is white. Okay, this example of it actually goes back to Aristotle, this swans being white and deduction. Yeah, it's how Aristotle explained it. Uh, there's no one here from Time Warner, is there? Because I, I got into when I tried to have this example in my article in Scientific American, they said, "No, no, you can't put Daffy Duck in there. <laughs> it's copyright, you know." <laughs> Tweety, no, no, no. <laughs> it's ridiculous, I think. But, uh, so that's deduction. The thing about deduction is that if the rule is true and the fact is true, you can only infer truth. You know, it's truth-preserving. That's the key, key to it all. If you write down some true axioms, you can infer some more true mathematics. Okay? Abduction is sort of in, in reverse. So you have, for example, rule all swans are white, Daffy is white, and you can infer that Daffy is a swan. And the thing to note here is that the, that isn't necessarily correct. You know, the... But it's one hypothesis, the thing to notice is one hypothesis could be correct, and then you could actually then do an experiment to find out whether Daffy is a, a swan or not. You, know, you can catch Daffy and sample his, his DNA or whatever. You know, you can, uh, it generates hypotheses. And in science, we need to have mechanisms for generating hypotheses. Okay? Until the physicists uh, give us the one true laws of the universe, we, deduction isn't sufficient. We need some new ways of generating ideas. And the other way, so this is abduction is what... Uh, Adam uses the other way of generating new ideas, a thing called induction, where you see, in fact, Daffy's a swan in white, Tweety's a swan in white, then you infer that all swans are white. Okay. And that was uh, generally believed, and it was believed by Aristotle, and it was taught in the Middle Ages, this rule that all swans are white. And, but the problem is that's not necessarily true either. You know? so it's, when people went to Australia, they found black swans. You know, it's, it's, you know, so new experience can always... Uh, show that induction is wrong. But induction is the main basis of science. In fact, it was David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, who pointed out that the reason that we believe induction is itself an induction. It only seems to work, which itself is an induction. So it's, 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 it's a worry. Because there's nothing to stop, you know, uh, suddenly the bread being poisonous tomorrow, the, the planet may stop on its tracks. All we have... To go on is the fact that it hasn't happened in the past, so it's probably not going to happen in the future. Okay, so this would be one possible hypothesis. This missing uh, gene here could code for this one, and you can do experiments by adding, say, prefinate, which allow us to reach parts of the graph which we couldn't do before. Okay, so the hypothesis is very simple for me. It's not deep science we're doing here, but it's still non-trivial. So we can have different hypotheses about which gene encodes a particular enzyme. 
Okay. And then you can do experiments by using these. What this says here is a deletant strain. So you have this gene is missing from, from the yeast. And you can add chemicals to the to growth medium. So these are the experiments which Adam can do. It can select particular deletant strains which have genes missing, and it can add certain chemicals to the environment. So if this gene was missing, we could add a chemical, and we could then... If this gene was missing, then we couldn't reach these two parts here. Therefore, the cell wouldn't be able to grow. But if we added prefinate, that would recover growth. Okay? And this is the sort of... Actually, this, people got uh, Nobel Prizes back in the 30s for disentangling these pathways by using this type of methodology. Okay, so we actually not only worked out the... Uh, this an abstract. We built a robot to do this experiments called Adam. Uh, very complicated. Had lots of automation to it. Automated deep freezers, three incubators, readers, liquid handlers, robot arms, and designed to initiate a thousand new experiments and make two hundred thousand observations a day. Okay. Let's reconnect. Let's see if this works. So what's happening here is that uh, the Adam has decided to do particular experiments with particular deletant strains of yeast and, and some particular chemicals. And it's taken these deletant strains out of the deep freeze, uh, mi minus 20 deep freeze. They're in what's called a 96 deep well plate. And Adam's going to take a stab sample, use a clean pipette, stab it into that frozen yeast, and then inoculate it into what's called rich growth medium. So rich growth medium is chemically undefined, but all the yeast strains will grow in it because it's made up of mashed up yeast, really. And it can put a different yeast strain in each well. So what Adam does then is it puts it in the incubator and every 40 minutes or so takes it out and reads the optical density. That's just a measure of how much growth it's, there is. So what it's doing is for each of these 96 wells, it's measuring how much growth has occurred there. And then it makes some decisions about whether to continue growing it or to go on to the next stage. Okay, so this is not the main experiments, this is just preparation for the experiments which the computer has designed. So after there's enough growth, it uh, spins the plate down, so there's a centrifuge that spins the plate at thousands of revolutions. And then it's, uh, all the yeast is squashed down to the bottom of the plate, and it washes away the, the growth medium using saline solution. That's what's happening here. It's washing away all that undefined chemicals. Then it uh, resuspends the yeast and makes a, a new growth plate with a defined amount of yeast going into the next stage of the experiment. So in this next stage, it's going to use defined growth medium. So every chemical in that growth medium is, is known to the computer and is designed to test the hypothesis. That's what's happening here. It's making up this defined growth medium. This is a fancy liquid handling robot because it can add different amounts of chemicals to each of the wells in parallel. So very few robots can do that. Okay, and the, the final stage is that the, the plates are moved down to the, the plate reading stage where 
every 20 minutes it's taken out of the incubator and put into a plate reader and amounts of growth measured. throws away the waste. Now there's each one of these pipette tips is about five cents each so it's 96 times five cents it mounts up. Okay. This is the output you get this is so there's this is standard in biology the, the shape of the plate. Uh, you can see that growth has occurred in some wells and not in others. These are the sort of what we call growth curves you get so typically it's like uh, what's called a logistic curve. So there's, you put the yeast in, you know, there's a lag period as it adjusts to the environment, then it starts growing exponentially, the yeast cells double, and then it runs out of some resource, and the population stabilizes or, and then crashes. Yeah. These are the sort of curves. There's also, and this is really hard, the sort of technical things, there's a lot of noise. So you can see this is, you have to do statistics and machine learning things to generate clean data out of this experiment. And that actually was the really hard part of all this was doing the, what on earth does that experiment mean in relation to the hypothesis? Because of practical physical world is noisy and it's very hard to do biological experiments, even with robots, you know, it's, to get repeatable results is, is non-trivial. So results interpretation. The other hard thing was that almost all the low-flying fruits has been already discovered in yeast, so that only really not qualitative experiments, but more quantitative things were left to be discovered. You know, so they grow. You could only notice things which genes which influence uh, growth by quantitative amounts, grow faster, slower, getting more biomass or less biomass. Interestingly, actually, most of the deletions we found made the yeast grow slightly better than the wild type. The wild type is the vanilla flavor normal type of yeast. Okay, so I would argue that uh, Adam's the first machine to have autonomously discovered novel scientific knowledge. It generated and confirmed 12 novel hypotheses about uh, the functions of genes in yeast. And of course, just because the computer and robotic system said that it confirmed these hypotheses doesn't mean it's actually true. So we went back into the lab and confirmed a number of these uh, using gold standard methods to, assume, to, to make sure that the actual hypothesis and confirmation of the hypothesis was correct. This is just a list of some of this knowledge. Okay, so I'm going to talk now about our second robot and finish off on Eve. Uh, it's a Anyway, it's a much better robot. You know, it's uh, you, second time round. You can engineer the system in a much cleaner way. You know, she's much more elegant than Adam was. Uh, and the idea of Eve was to apply this same idea of automating scientific research and apply it to uh, drug design, an area of uh, more importance to society. We use synthetic biology-based yeast assays, and the, the idea was to how drug screening is done at the moment in the industry is that. You have a big library of compounds. You start at the beginning of that library, continue to the end, then stop. Uh, and then you go on to the next stage, confirm any hits you have, and then you go into a cycle of experiments of forming new structures and testing them. EVE was designed to integrate all these three steps into one machine. Get some pictures of it. These are much more elegant robot arms. The target uh, for the diseases to be treated by Eve are neglected tropical diseases, so malaria, still millions of people are infected, still kills, still kills millions of people every year. Leishmania is a horrible tropical disease uh, you get from sand flies, you know, these, these tiny little black flies you, you can see in the tropical areas, uh, uh, hides in your body f for a long time. Cystosomiasis uh, is caused by uh, worms in your body. So this is uh, flatworms. And Chagas disease is uh, 
these are, this is these are horrible. These are assassin bugs. Uh, they live in uh, in South America in uh, in people's houses and their huts, which aren't uh, proper fumigated, and they sneak up to you in the middle of the night and bite you. Uh, it's probably that's the Darwin had uh, Shiga's disease. It still affects a lot of people, and it's with you for a, l- a long time as well. That's, it doesn't kill you immediately. It sort of affects your heart. And uh, there's a lot of people in the U.S. that have Shiga's disease from uh, who are immigrated here from Latin America. Well, we're actually targeting particular enzymes. So these these beautiful pictures are are the little machines, the enzymes which we're trying to specifically break in these parasitic diseases and not break because we have the same enzymes in us which are subtly different and the aim is to find drugs which hit the parasites enzymes but not our ones. Okay. Especially this one, this is a, a classic target, diadrophilic reductase. Oh, we made these special, so we're using yeast again in that we made yeast into a little uh, analog computer. So we made two different strains of yeast, one to make looks like the human being and one that looks like the parasite. And we look for drugs which uh, stopped the parasite-looking yeast growing and not the human being ones. Yeah, so a little analog computer. And we label the different ones with different fluorescent proteins. So this, this is some real pictures, the fluoresce, blue, green, red. And we measure, find drugs which, say, uh, inhibit the growth of certain of these colors. Which, so we can test different parasites in, in the same assay, which is we get this paralyzation, which is quite nice. And this is sort of results. This is, this primethamine is uh, a standard, this is actually uh, a disease used against malaria, and we show how it kills the malaria here. And we found other drugs which behave similarly to it. We found, well, we found lots of interesting uh, chemoformatic results using EVE. Just a list of the diseases we've been tackling, so malaria. It turns out there's at least there's two main uh, organisms which cause malaria, Plasmodium falciparum, which is the one which most effort has been put in probably correctly because this is the disease which kills most people in the world and most children in Africa. But actually much more, many more people are actually infected by Plasmodium vivax, which, uh, and it has a much wider range and uh, was prevalent here in the US, I'm I'm pretty sure, and could come back. Uh, And you can't grow Plasmodium vivax in the lab still, we still can't grow it. If you want to test a new drug, you have to get some freshly infected blood. And we also looked at resistant, one of the nice things about SESA allows us to look at resistant varieties as well of these enzymes, so we can specifically target uh, drug-resistant varieties. We also looked at African sleeping sickness, starting to look at bacterial infections. So, so drug-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, you know, is, is a major threat to, to anyone who goes into a hospital anywhere in the world now. And it's, it's, it's terrifying, actually. That okay, Eve's hardware. Ah, well, one of the, the nicest thing. Uh, this is. It turns out that the the best way to move small amounts of liquid around now is acoustically. So what happens? This machine is that it uses sonic waves to vibrate the liquid, and little droplets fly up from it of defined size. And this is a much better way of moving small amounts of liquid than using pipette tips. And much cheaper as well. Uh, it's amazing. You, th- you think, how can that possibly work? But it, it does. Okay, actually, I think I'll sh- show Eve working when we have questions. It's a different thing. Now, to, to, to sum up, uh, well, the future. So in chess, there's this continuum of ability from novices like myself up to Gary Kasparov. And... Uh, and I would argue the same is true in science, that there's this natural continuum between the very simple type of science which Adam can, can do at the moment through what most human beings can do up to your Newton and Einsteins. I don't think there's any uh, discontinuity there. And if you accept that, then it means that computers will get better at doing science just as they've got better at playing chess. You know? And that was driven by 
general developments in computer science, you know, uh, in computer hardware and software. And there's very little actually now that for laboratory science, which a robot can actually, can actually do. So most laboratory science was, can actually physically be done by robots. And I think the science will be getting more intelligent. Uh, the physics Nobel laureate Frank Vilovich uh, is on record saying that in 100 years' time, the best physicist will be a machine. Uh, I'm not sure if that's correct, uh, but uh, it's a testable hypothesis. You know, so it's, you just have to wait 100 years and we'll, we'll see. And uh, I think it will probably happen. Uh, I don't see any deep reason why it's not possible. So to conclude, uh, automation is becoming increasingly important in scientific research, DNA sequencing, drug design, etc. I argue that the robot scientist concept represents the next logical step in scientific automation. The robot scientist, Adam, is the first machine to have discovered novel scientific knowledge, and Eve is uh, finding lead compounds for neglected tropical diseases. I have to thank all the people in Ab so Aberystwyth and Cambridge and Leuven who have collaborated with me. Cause I recently moved to Manchester from Aberystwyth, and I'd like to thank you for your attention. Thank you. I think so. I don't see any fundamental reason why not. So what, in fact, in some ways, that what human beings, so I think theoretical physics is very hard for human beings, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily the hardest thing for a computer to do. You know, chess is really hard for human beings, and it's, but not for computers now. So it's what we find difficult and what a computer finds difficult aren't necessarily the, the same thing. So I, I, dealing with these theoretical concepts in some ways is actually simpler, I think, than dealing with messier bits of uh, science, like some areas of biology, where it's, it's much harder to know what's true and not true. So you're, it's less firm what you're building on. Okay, sorry. I was wondering if you could, um, if you talk about, about the crowdsourcing experiments and whether you see them as a, as a computing platform, Foldit and the Turner and all the other, um, you know, uh, giving the ability of a wider population to participate in science through gamification. If you see that as something that's compatible with uh, EVE, and um, if so, when will we be able to get EVE in people's houses? When will we be able to have programmable scientists that we can have? Well, what, what's your prediction on, on the medium term? Okay, so the question is the relation to uh, crowdsourcing in science. and you know, I, I, th I think there are they're sort of orthogonal. They're, they're not necessarily related to each other. So getting better human, having human beings collaborate better in science is, is a good thing. And having people, especially now, I think there will be more technology in people's houses which will be of interest to scientists, like the computing power, as you mentioned. Also, there'll be more and more sensors there which will help us generally uh, do things. And human beings are still much better at certain aspects of things, like... Uh, reading and things like this. Uh, the cost, ro so both of these robots cost about a million dollars each. Uh, so, but they're probably, no, they're probably less sophisticated than an average car. You know, that's certainly less sophisticated than these cars sitting outside, you know. That, that, and it's just because they build more of these cars that the, the costs are different, you know. So it's a matter of a marketplace for such equipment, I think. The back there, sorry. Uh -huh. out, how does it account for interdependency of that gene's function being triggered only if an existing identified gene malfunctioned right? Probably not a very scientifically framed question, but... Yeah, okay, yeah, there's, there's always this problem in science in that there's a, 
in some sense, an infinite number of explanations for any observation. You know, so uh, it didn't eliminate all possibilities. It made just provided more evidence that this is the most likely explanation. To really demonstrate that the hypotheses were correct, we did the sort of gold standards. We took the enzyme out, purified it, and then showed that it had the chemical uh, properties which we predict, well, which the robot predicted. Yes. So we did other experiments which are much cleaner to do that. Yeah. Over here. I, I read somewhere, and I think it was Karl Popper, that you can't prove a hypothesis, you can only disprove it. Is that right? And if it is, if you had the hypothesis that all swans are white, mm -hmm. how would you prove it? Well, you can, that's right, you can't never prove it. Then you can't really ever disprove it either. This is but one thing you didn't really emphasize. It's, it's, you know, I, if I see a white, you know, I see a one black swan, I say, well, maybe I'm hallucinating. And I see more. It's, it's very hard if people refuse to take evidence to ever really completely convince them. You know, it's, maybe that swan fell into, uh, into some ink or something. You know, it's, there is it's, it's this philosophical discussion about how to do it. There's, there's reasons why it's more efficient to, to test experiments the way Karl Popper suggested. But his, he actually argued that induction was impossible what, on the basis that there's an infinite number of hypotheses to explain anything, therefore they have a prior probability of zero, you know, that, which is, I think, wrong and not generally considered to be correct anymore. Yes. Um, I'm fascinated by this clip that you're showing us, and I was just wondering what sort of input Adam and Eve take and uh, whether, when, and what, how you interfered during the process. Okay, so uh, Adam was uh, not very reliable. It was badly built in many ways, and I could just go into the reasons for that. So, uh, so it had to be, you know, we had to have technicians there looking after it and sometimes restarting and things. But there was essentially no intellectual action f from us, you know. So it was a, all the intellectual work was done by the, the computer. Sometimes we had to physically intervene to get it working again, but otherwise not. Yes. Sorry. How much more powerful is Eve than Adam? And you're saying they both cost about the same. They, they cost they both cost about the same amount. And then if you sequence it out, you know how much power do you get in the next, you know, five years? And what are the implications for drug discovery? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, they're they're doing different biological tasks. You know, so. Uh, I'm not sure if you could say one's more powerful than the other. It's the, ro the robot was much better engineered because we had more, more say in, in making Eve. So, in Adam, we, we were new to this field and we asked some commercial company who shall uh, be nameless to protect them. <laughs> I don't know if we did, for defamation reasons, but they did a terrible job building Adam in many ways. Uh, so, in Eve, we did it differently and it shows the components ourselves and put them together. And had a rough design of how to put that together, and got an integration company to put it together for us, who are much better. Uh, the robots are getting better, but not not exponentially better. Like uh, computers are getting faster and things. So that's uh, it's, it's all being driven by the hardware, software developments, really, rather than automation developments per se. What they are doing actually is getting smaller. So. Eve uses 384 plates, which is four times, instead of the 96 plates of, of Adam. Yeah, so that th increases throughput. Yeah. Right. Um, it seems like yeah, they are making their own hypothesis, but it's based on a programming framework that you guys have previously enabled it. Mm -hmm. um, what is, it seems like then they're, they're still in a structure of the programming. You know, they still can only make hypotheses given the framework provided. Uh, what, is the, like, what is the future of maybe changing it so that they can create hypotheses that maybe you don't even know the framework for? Or how does the programming then like, uh, evolve to enable like, the higher order? Yeah, I understand. That's a, that's a good yeah. question in the, in the sense that I don't know. I don't have an easy answer to it, <laughs> as opposed to a good question which I can give a pat answer to it. I, this is the deep question, and that's the really hardest. The, that's where it's hard, I think. That's so uh, getting the robots to work. That's in some sense engineering, and 
But uh, improving the intelligence of the system is, is the deep, hard part. And you can envisage some system which is, uh, has some meta-learning on top of the, the lower system and changes its representation and things, but no one has anything like that at the moment, and that's a deep problem. Okay. Uh, how do you see cloud computing affecting AI? Ah, uh, well, it's providing cheaper, cheaper computing. So some things which, uh, you know, some things are easy. If you have access to thousands of computers, you can, certain things are much easier to compute, you know, if it's naturally parallelizable. Uh, so that just makes computing even cheaper and uh, which drives AI, you know, it's... Do you collaborate with other laboratories that might have machines that um, will sequence genes, produce them, or will automatically modify chemical molecules, you know? Uh, we do. Yeah, so what's, there's two main things which are missing in EVE to really fully automate things. So you could imagine some machine which would make the yeast strains the way we want them, and some machine which then made the chemicals. And both these things are, are technically possible now. It's just, if someone gives me enough money, I can do that. <laughs> so that's what, I, that's what I love to do, and I can, that's what I'm trying to get money to do. Yeah. Okay, well, there's uh, two reasons. One is that you're not competing head-to-head -head with the, the pharmaceutical industry, which is hard to... They just have so much bigger budgets. And secondly... Well, I've got three reasons. Secondly, it's... Uh, it's they're important, and, I, and people need these drugs, you know. And the third and really most important reason, actually, it's much easier. So we know what the problem is with malaria and Shiga's disease. You have these parasites in your blood, and... They, you want rid of them. With cancer, it's much trickier. Okay, so we know you have you have a cancer which is growing. You want rid of it, but it's not so simple in that there. It's it's almost identical to yourself. Well, it's part of yourself. There's lots of variants of it there. You know, there's it's constantly mutating. It's a much harder problem, and it and it's even harder to go to things like diabetes, uh, obesity, where we don't even know what the problem is in a deep sense, the systemic problem. You know, so it's it's much simpler. And I'm sure if the pharmaceutical industry had spent anything like the amount of money they spent on cancer, they would have cured these diseases long ago. Okay. Thank you very much again.